here we are in week four out of five as we go through the book of Lamentations. I've got to say, for me personally, it's been fascinating doing all of the research and reading commentaries and learning about it, and I hope you're able to appreciate particularly how the Bible helps us reflect and be freed when we encounter pain and suffering and trauma and despair and hope. Uh, God is not absent in those moments. Um, God may be feeling silent, but God is close. Uh, this acrostic that um, Larry will pop up on the screen is an interesting reminder to me about problems. Uh, it's written by John, a John Maxwell, who's a Christian leadership expert, and he's very good on lots of things. Um, I like it generally, except for the last one. Uh, I think this offers an interesting reflection about, and the reason why I'm put putting it up is it offers an interesting reflection about what some of us are taught about problems. Um, and about pain and grief and loss, etc. So let me read it, and then I'll comment on the last part, on the last one. Um, so it's an acrostic of um, problems. An acrostic seemed appropriate, seeing Lamentations is full of acrostics. Um, problems, predictors, they will mould our future. Uh, reminders that we're not self-sufficient. We need God and others to help us through life. Uh, o for opportunities, they pull us out of our rut and cause us to think creatively and differently. Blessings, B for blessings, they might open doors we otherwise would not go through. L for lessons, each new challenge will be our teacher. E for everywhere, no place or person is excluded from them. M for messages, they warn us about potential disaster. And S for solvable, no problem is without a solution. As we've moved through Lamentations, I've certainly found valuable insights about each of these points that John Maxwell offers us in this little acrostic, except for perhaps the last one. Perhaps you have too, except for the last one. Now, sure, on a surface level, uh, it might be true, uh, but not necessarily with the more significant problems that life can deal to us. I think that's a nice, useful slide to... Um, pull up when we're, you know, um, dealing with a car spot we can't find at Eastland or something like that. Um, but it's this last one, this last line, and the, the problems it raises for me with that kind of mentality um, on a deeper level, so I'm not bagging it because it's good on a, on a basic level, as, you know, when your pen won't work or something. But it's this last one, I think, that Lamentations helps us with much more significantly and helpfully. Uh, and it's a timely thing to note that the deepest wisdom comes from the Bible, not people's ideas or prevailing culture or some leadership guru. Because you see, not only um, has the Bible got wisdom and it, that's come via the inspiration of God, and that is enough in and all of itself, but the Bible is this wisdom and this inspired word from God that has come that has then stood the test of time. Um, if it was not truth, it would have been found out by now. This Lamentations was written two and a half thousand years ago. If, if it was not true, if it, was, it did not stand the test of time, it would have been found out by countless generations and millennia and cultures and, and, and encounters. Instead, it still stands up as something that has deep insight and wisdom, the word to offer us, um, and it's amplified by the different lenses that it's been tested through and been found helpful by. 
John Maxwell and his type of um, leaders and, and, and inspirers are helpful on matters of leadership and communications and accumulating lessons from experience and it might offer some useful help and motivation on some things. So don't throw it out. I'm not, if you've got John Maxwell books, don't throw them out. They're all good. Um, but don't build your life beliefs and philosophy on this sort of thing. Go deeper and seek the wisdom that's found in the pages of the Bible. You have to wrestle and you'll be challenged. But you won't, and you won't get the answers that you want all of the time. But you will find the truth solid ground on which you can build your life. And remember, it's the truth that will set you free. So go deeper and build your life on the words in these pages. Now back to this last little line of John Maxwell's acrostic. He says that no problem is without a solution. Really? What does lamentation say? Now in God's economy... Ultimately, of course, on a macro level, um, it is a truth to say that no problem is without a solution because God is God and, of course, there is a solution because God is God and he can do whatever he wants. And so we could kind of, in that case, say, oh, well, that's kind of, in a, in a general sense, true. And in the case of the situation of Jerusalem here after, in, after 586 BC, uh, lamentations, uh, we might also note that they were warned by prophets like Isaiah and Micah and Amos and Hosea. Those prophets had spoken out that this was coming if, if, if um, Judah didn't change and that they should have repented as prophesied. And they didn't, and devastation came. So you might say, well, the prophets warned you and you know, God's God and so that's your kind of solution on that kind of level. But even that kind of advice doesn't actually provide a solution after the event to these folk who were left in the ruins of Jerusalem, beaten and injured and starving and abused and psychologically and spiritually wounded and grieving and traumatised with the temple where their God lived, smashed and in ruins. Try saying to a cancer sufferer or a person with a chronic illness or a victim of serious injustice or crime or someone with a deep grief that, that say, say to the people with these conditions, oh, your problem has a solution. A comment like that is tone deaf at least. It just doesn't cut the mustard. In fact, it can be cruel and in a secondary way, uh, it can repunish someone who in all likelihood may well be a victim of biology or genes or human life or human sin or, and particularly human sin that's not their own in, in many cases. The idea of an automatic solution to a problem suggests that problems just need to be solved or fixed. Lamentations, and as we've been reading it through, and here we are in week four, it teaches us to sit in the mud a little bit. It teaches us that sometimes it's necessary to sit in the mud because the way forward is in phases and, and sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back. For a while. After all, Job reflected, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Job. Moses, the great founder of Israel and teacher and creator of the law, the great wise man, he concluded, 
at the end of his life, in the end of Deuteronomy. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow the words of his law. There are some things we have to let rest with our Lord and Creator. So let's not be so quick to solve or spiritualise other people's problems. Let's not be so quick to solve or spiritualise some of our own problems. Let's walk with them lovingly and patiently. I quoted an anonymous saying, I can't find the source last week, but it says, when you can't look on the bright side, I will sit with you in the dark. Remember that with your friends and family who are suffering, walk with them. And if you can't find the bright side, sit with them in the dark. Lamentations doesn't leave us there forever. It acknowledges and dwells in the mud of the situation. But nonetheless, we need to also remember that at the very centre of this five-chapter book, it does offer a way forward. It reminds us, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. So it might be bad and we might sit in the mud or we might sit in the dark, but we are not consumed. For God's compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. We aren't very patient in our, patient in our world, are we? I like things now. I can't believe that if my coffee's gone cold, it takes a minute to reheat it in the microwave. A minute. How impatient am I? I, I mean, I'm old enough to remember how long it used to take for a television to warm up. Remember that? You try to get there for the 7 o'clock news or your favourite show or whatever and you just get there on the hour and you turn it on. It'd take about half an hour to warm up as the tubes would get going and you'd miss the opening scene and everything that you've been looking forward to. We need to learn patience. And Lamentations teaches us, theologically, biblically, slow down, be patient, adjust and, and, and retune in to the creator of heaven and earth. You know, when you look at the stars at night, there's been some beautiful nights recently this week and Venus has been glorious in the sky. Um, in fact, Kim and I the other night, um, we were trying to work out if it was Venus or an aeroplane. It was just so bright. We had to get out an app and put it up and it was, it was amazing. When you start looking into the heavens, you slow down. I look into the dark spaces between the stars. Do you ever do that? And let your eyes adjust and other stars start appearing? We need to learn patience. It's the way the creation is built. When we look at a tree in a park, we could see the tree and then we move on. But no, stop. Look at the tree. Look at the kind of leaves. Look at the branches. Look at the birds that are living in it and, and using it. Look at its context. Look at its surrounding. We need to learn to slow down and be patient with the things of God, but also the problems of this life. I will wait for him. This, this famous passage concludes. We need to learn to wait. So here we are in chapter 4. Holly commented on that it's shorter. It's actually a third shorter than the previous three chapters. Um, the other, it still has 22 verses and follows the Hebrew alphabet acrostically, but there were only two lines to each verse in, in this, this chapter compared to three lines in the other ones. As a result, it's shorter and it feels more deliberate when you read it. It's short and it's to the point. There's a sense of 
exhaustion and remoteness as we are getting 80% through this book and the poet is running out of ways to say how bad it is. One commentator said this, It's as if the depth of anger, unbearable hurt and searing physical pain and torrent of tears that fired the first three poems or chapters has at last been consumed, spent. Here we meet suffering at its most base and debilitating, unadored by strategies of resistance. Here Lamentations comes closest to realising the kind of -of matter-of-fact representation of suffering that exemplifies so much modern post-Holocaust literature, where the horror of previous unimagined atrocities is equaled only by the everyday occurrence, everydayness of that occurrence. You get overwhelmed and used to tragedy. Chapter 4 focuses on the suffering in three areas in particular of the children, starvation and the wider people who were left in Jerusalem. It starts by contrasting the streets with golden gemstone, gold and gemstones. Now we know this is a poem and we know that poems use all sorts of literary devices to make the point and this is one of those examples where it's talking about gold and gemstones as though it's brilliant and fantastic when it's the very opposite. Read verse 1. How the gold has lost its luster, in the fine gold become dull. The sacred gems are scattered at every street corner. The scene is like precious jewels have been dulled, they've lost their brightness, and they've been scattered, thrown out and cast out like seeds. The reference to precious stones being scattered also reminds and comes from in, in the time when the poet's writing this, is reflecting on the fact that the stones of the temple have just been scattered out like seeds. They're lying like rubble all across. Their beautiful temple that, that Solomon had built, that God dwelt in, is just rubble and it's on the ground. And the poem then turns, in the first section, to the plight of the children. How precious the children of Zion, once worth their weight in God. So linking this jewellery image now to children, are considered as pots of clay, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but my people have become heartless like ostriches in the desert. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. They were once worth their weight in gold, but now are like simple clay pots. Something of great value that's devalued. Earthen vessels or clay pots were things that people used to use and then just discard, throw out and break them when they're of no use. There's a few psalms and a few Bible verses on the way through, particularly in Jeremiah, that refer to this. Psalm 2.9, for example, refers to this. It says, you'll break them with a rod of iron, you'll dash them to pieces like pottery. It's something to throw away. Of course, it's one thing to speak of gold and precious jewels being devalued and scattered and thrown away. And it's another thing to speak of that happening to children. So there's this link with jewellery, there's a link link with the temple being smashed, and now the poet turns to the very children of Jerusalem. And this is where I remember, uh, in in the dedication of Matteo, I said, hold that as an image, because other than baptism and marriage and funerals, a dedication 
is one of the most kind of sacred and precious things that we do in the life of a church community. This is our next generation that we're lifting up and we're praying for and we're wanting to journey with. And that's because children are so very important. It's a reminder here to us of the value of children. Um, now, normally, if you were doing it, um, Jared and Kathleen and I talked, you wouldn't normally be doing a series of lamentations when you were doing a, a ch child's dedication, but it is what it is. But it's interesting because it actually, this very passage reminds us of the value of children and the centrality. Now, it's from a negative perspective, but it's showing us that sometimes churches can treat children as something to be seen and not heard when the opposite is true. For without precious children, any society or any church has no future. Look at, the ch look at a church without a thriving children's and youth ministry and I'll show you a ch church without a future. Um, if you ever get to the morning tea biscuits over there and they're all gone because the kids have got there first and they've beaten you, that is a moment to praise the Lord for. Don't get too grumpy. Think about it. If the kids have got there first and got the biscuits, that's a healthy church. But here in Lamentations, we're presented with the scene in Jerusalem. Children are begging for food and they're scattered and they're lying across the ground. It's a horrible scene. And the Bible refers to God as the divine potter. Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. The divine potter creates humanity from the dust. And Jeremiah picks this up in chapter 18 where God is described as the potter who can build up or bring down kingdoms. Here's a sample from verses 5 or 6. Um, you might want to read the whole of Jeremiah 18. Um, then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do this with you, Israel, as the potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. God is the divine potter. So here in chapter 4, what the divine potter has carefully crafted that was precious jewels, that was of immense value, that was gleaming, is broken and scattered. We're reminded of, this is how Isaiah summarized the scene in Isaiah 64. So we're going to another one of the prophets, but this is later in Isaiah of, of what happened with Jerusalem. Yet you, O Lord, are our father. And this is the imagery that Isaiah borrows from too. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities, Jerusalem, have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, would you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? This is the scene that we have. And this is the reflection about the children. The next section, verses 5 to 10, the poet now moves from the children, still including them, but to the general situation of starvation that's occurring for all the people who are there in this scene. Verse 5. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those brought up in royal purple now lie on ash heaps. 
Remember, purple is a royal colour. It invokes wealth and images of comfort. When, when we see the king's coronation in May, there'll be purple everywhere. But now those who wear purple are turned to ash heaps and lie destitute in the streets. Their fate is worse than Sodom, the archetypical biblical model of destruction and Jerusalem. You do think of, you can't think of anything more destructive than invoking the imagery of Sodom, and that is here. It's worse, apparently. The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, but without a hand turned to help her. We don't know true starvation here in Melbourne. The closest we might come is fasting, but the poet summarises the situation. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine, racked with hunger. They waste away for lack of food from the field. And then we turn to perhaps the worst imagery in the whole five chapters of Lamentations, overlapping the scattered children imagery with verses about starvation in verse 10. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. A poet can't reach for anything more graphic and illustrative than a verse like that. In each successive verse and scene, the poet is trying to find language that describes the ravages of the situation. And he's pretty effective, right? He now moves to the third section in this chapter, a more general description of the suffering. Verses 11 to 16. So we've gone from the children to the starvation, now to the general scene. He no longer concentrates his focus on the specific aspects like children and starvation. It's now more general. The Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He's poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the peoples of the world, that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. But it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed within her the blood of the righteous. And remember, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about the prophets that were referred to here in Lamentations were the false prophets, not the Isaiahs and the Amoses and the Micahs and the Hoseas who spoke the word as tough as it was and were resilient to the truth and what God needed to say. These were the false prophets who just said what itching ears wanted to hear. The poet ends this section by this summary of the scene and then he starts the next four verses by giving voice to all those people who have heard, who we've heard about, who are suffering. So it's all been described thus far and now in the next verses he lets the people speak and we hear from them. The community of sufferers is now telling us of their experience. And this is important, incredibly important and, and, and deep insight from Lamentations to us about what we should do when those around us are suffering. Allowing people the dignity of retelling their story is incredibly important important not fixing it just letting them speak and speak it out often people who are traumatized or grieving feel that the suffering somehow they feel that it's their fault and people who are traumatized or whistleblowers in organizations or people who suffer it comes back on them and they feel as though it's even though they might not have done anything wrong that they feel because they're not listened to and validated it must be something wrong about them which of course just compounds 
the nature of suffering. In effect, it reinforces the worst voices that are speaking to them already from within. Whereas if you sit with someone, and we can all do this, whereas if you sit with someone or walk with them and just let them speak, that is so incredibly important. There, there are a few things we can do that are more powerful other than prayer than just sit and listen. You're, you're conveying a message when you listen to someone that they are valuable, that they matter, that their experience is real, that they are not alone, and that someone cares for them. Jesus did that so often right through the Gospels. People came to him and he listened. Here are some basic tips for effective listening that might help you um, if you need to listen to someone who is in need. These, I think these are just uh, useful. I've dug around and found these and reflected and built up, I think, 11 tips for effective listening. Slow things down. Remove distractions like phones or electric gadgets. Just turn it off. Put it away. Put it, don't, just don't let it ring. Make the person the centre of your attention. Don't turn the conversation over to you and your experience. It's not about you. It's not a competition. Their experience is what matters, so let them speak. Just let them roll on. Keep your attention on the person. Don't be distracted by things going on around you, the car driving there, the person doing it. Keep your eyes on them. Validate the feelings of the person you're listening to. I see what you mean. Yeah, I hear you. Don't interrupt them. Just let their conversation flow. Every time we interrupt someone, we're distracting them from the conscious flow that they were in. So just let them let it out. Um, don't top their stories or jokes. Just let them roll. Don't, just because they tell a joke doesn't mean that you have to tell a joke and it becomes you know, a joke session. Just let them speak it out. Humour is often expressed by traumatised and grief-filled people as, a, as a, a little pause of relief, a little pause of just resurfacing like a whale coming up for air and then going back down. Um, don't criticise or judge. They might say all sorts of crazy things or wrong things or whatever. Just let them speak. It's not about correcting. It's not about fixing. It's about listening. Don't argue. Don't over-spiritualise. And don't figure everything out or solve things. Remember, we've talked about the importance sometimes of sitting in the mud. And the poet does exactly this. He lets the people of Jerusalem speak freely in verses 17 through 22. Moreover, our eyes have failed, looking in vain for help. From our towers we watched for a nation that could not save us. People stalked us at every step, so we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the sky. They chased us over the mountains and lay wait for us in the desert. The Lord's anointed, our very life breath, was caught in their traps. We thought that under his shadow we would live among the nations. In an article recently in Psychology Today, um, it reported that crying can actually remove chemicals that build up during emotional stress. This article reported that the amount of mang I hope I'm getting this right, but the amount of manganese is it manganese or manganese? I think it's manganese, so let's go with that. I'm not a chemist. 
reported that the amount of manganese stored in the body affects our moods. The body stores 30 times as much manganese in tears as in blood serum. Biologist William Frey says that the gland which determines the flow of tears concentrates and removes manganese from the body. Frey's also identified three chemicals stored up by stress and release by the act of crying. Women cry about four times as frequently as men, on average. Women also live longer. Joseph wept eight times. Paul wept four times. Well, recorded in the Bible, probably many more. David's men wept until they had no more power to weep. The psalmist wept until he clenched his couch, until he drenched his couch and made his bed swim in Psalm 6 6. Jesus wept. And in Revelation 21 4, we have the promise, God promises us, that he shall wipe away all the tears of his redeemed. So we live now in an age of weeping. That will end, but now we live in an age where weeping is good, is necessary, is how we're built with what happens in life. Revelation 21.4 says and promises, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That is our promise. A little girl was once late home from playing at her friend's house. When her mother asked her where she'd been, she explained that her friend had fallen and broken her very special doll. The little girl explained that she'd stayed to help her friend. The mother asked, really? So how did you help her? To which the little girl replied, I just sat down and helped her cry. May we go into the week, maybe weeping ourselves, or maybe sitting with those who need a shoulder to cry on. May we be Jesus' presence as we listen, as we give voice to the broken, to the grieving, to the powerless, as we go freely and lovingly to build, to hold, to carry, so that we might make it together. This is the message of Lamentations 4. Let me pray. Loving God, thank you for the wisdom, for the truth, and for the awful insight that we gain as we read through this book that focuses on children and starvation and giving people voice. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we're going through a part of the Bible that we tend not to open up much or understand. And yet here it is, so applicable and so helpful, all of your word. All of your word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path all of it and it's truth that will set us free so as we go into this week may we despite the topic of this text may we be empowered and encouraged to weep freely and proudly to offer our shoulder to those who need a shoulder to offer our ears to those who need someone to dignify them with listening let us go into the world, Lord, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, the creator, and that each person is made in the image of God as an incredibly valuable and matters. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.